0: Where I grew up, um, it was uh, it was on a gravel road. You would probably call it a holler or a hollow. There was about eleven houses of it. There were uh, three boys that lived on the on the mile long road, uh, about my age. There were also there were also two girls, and um, we lived in a. In a community that that you could get from point A to point B, from one person's house to to another, in about 15 or, or 20 minutes, so we're not really that far uh, apart. And and as kids over the summer and on the weekends, um, we would uh, we would find ourselves playing football or kickball or some other uh, backyard sport. Um, and you probably remember from your days of, uh, of pickup games the way that that worked when you got a, a gaggle of teenagers or, or younger together to, uh, to play ball. Uh, teams were chosen by two captains, and usually the two captains were, were either the, the best players or whoever owned the yard that you were in. You know, there was some distinction there. Um, We'd all line up, and the captains would choose their team one player at a time, and if you were a mediocre player like me, you felt uh, the pressure build watching the pool of players get smaller and smaller while you remain unpicked. Um, Put me on a a motorcycle or in a tree stand, and I could hang with the best of them, but... um, I was not the best uh, athlete. Played a lot, but that's about it. There was also the ultimate shame. You remember the ultimate shame being the last one left, right? And you don't even get picked if, in that case. If you're the last one left, you the the, uh, the other team just has to take you. I mean, they don't even say, okay, I'll pick him. I mean, you're just there, and it's like, all right, you get him, right? I mean, the captains at times even maneuvered to see who would pick first. They count, okay, man, I don't want him. I want to make sure you get him. So I'm going to pick here and, and move on, on down the line. What fond memories of childhood, right? We even played opposite at times, where the, the opposing captain gets to assign the other captain's team. Now, that's fun. Of course, the goal there was to try to stick the other guy with the worst players possible, so the worst guys go first to begin with, and, and it was so that, that he would lose. In either case, uh, after the teams were, were divided up, you would always make some kind of distinction um, before you played, so you could identify the, the players, shirts versus skins, uh, inside out versus right side in. Uh, you'd take your shirt off and turn it, turn it inside, uh, inside out. Uh, if we scrimmaged a junior high or high school, I mean, we got fancy. We got these yellow or red mesh jerseys, so you could tell who was, who was who. And you did that because, because it's important to know who was on, on which team. Um, because it may differ from, from game to game. The players needed to know. Uh, To see who they were playing with, the opposing team and the captain needed to know who they were playing against, and if you didn't, you can end up on, you know, one of those America's funny video shows where you score for the wrong guy or, you know, pass the ball to, to the wrong player. Well, in our passage today, in Exodus chapter 8, God is going to unleash the fourth plague, and in doing so, he's going to make a distinction. He's going to make a distinction between his people and Egypt's people, his people and Pharaoh's people. He's going to draw this clear line using a plague to distinguish between the two groups, their land, their animals and property, and most importantly, their God. It won't be a uniform that is going to mark the difference in our passage. It's, it will actually be a judgment that will mark the difference between the children of Israel and the people of Egypt. The plague will not touch one inch of Goshen, which is where Israel was located, one Israelite. And in contrast, there will not be a single Egyptian citizen, animal, or home that's not utterly consumed by the, by the plague. Unlike the example of, of our sports teams and what you may remember growing up, God doesn't do this so He can get the best players in order to win or so He can tell who's on whose team um He already knows um, who you worship and and who you follow, just like he knew israel and and Egypt and he's already shown us in genesis he doesn't He doesn't put the best and the brightest on his team. does he just look in the mirror right? If God were the proverbial captain of our of our example and he was picking a team, he would start with the last guy, the worst guy first. He would pick an impossible to have Isaac over a let's help God out Ishmael. He would pick a weaker Jacob over a stronger Esau. He would choose to save the people of Israel threw a betrayed, imprisoned Joseph instead of the obvious firstborn Reuben. He would put the mighty Egyptians on his team, not the Israelite slaves who were relegated to the land of Goshen because they Worship to God and sacrifice things that, that was despicable in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians looked down on them because of because of their, their religious practices. You see, God loves to glorify Himself by taking the unlikely and the improbable and use them to accomplish the the impossible. He takes the the spiritually blind and sin-crippled and lame of of this world and and makes them His precious people. You might think of it this way. If you're one of God's people, you've trusted in Christ, um, we have the worst individual stats, but the team has the best record in the league. We're undefeated. It's like having the roster of the Bad News Bears and the record of the New York Yankees or the Red Sox, or some other greater analogy. It's amazing. And we're all living proof of that. You can think of the New Testament passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, and 3, where God says that he confounds the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the wise through you. <laughs> Through me, through the fact that we are not um, the best and the brightest and the most capable in the world. As a matter of fact, apart from God, we have no hope and, and we're nothing and we, we can do how much without Jesus? Nothing. nothing, the Bible says. But with him, we can do all things. And there's the difference Jesus makes the difference. Um, so today we're going to see Moses is going to teach us why God makes this distinction between His people and the world. It's very clear. He does it all the way back here in Egypt. It's very clear. It's going to get it's going to get more and more defined as the plagues go along. He's going to do it whenever they go into the land. He's going to give Israel a special diet, a special law. He's going to tell them these things you can do, there are things that you can't do. You can't intermarry. You need to be separate. And that was so there would be a distinction between Israel and the world. And he does the same thing in the New Testament in the church. God defines very clearly. If you are a follower of Christ, then, then you're baptized into the body. You're part of the body of, of Christ. And, and if you're not a follower of Christ, you're, you're not part of the church. You can be through Christ, but if you've never trusted in Him, you're not. He makes that clear distinction. And, and God's going to teach us and begin to lay a foundational truth all the way back here in Exodus chapter 8 as to why. Why does he do that? What's the purpose of of doing that? And in the process, we're going to watch Pharaoh take another step toward his hardness and Israel take another step toward, toward freedom. So if you're not already there, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. And we'll begin reading in verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses... Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, notice he repeats that twice, Behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people into your houses. Notice all of those pronouns. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day, I will set apart. I will make a difference. I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the land. It will make a distinction or a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the houses, into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Notice our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then they will, uh, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me, pray for me. And then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. There's that phrase again. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, and his servants and from his people not one remained. And here is our all too familiar ending line. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. The last time, in the, in the last plague, we saw that even if men turn a deaf ear to God's words, he, he can still declare himself through his works. The Lord is never without a witness. The, the plague of lice was the finger of God on Egypt, and, and Pharaoh acknowledged God's power with the frogs, and now the Egyptian priesthood acknowledges God's power with the, with the lice. In Plague 4, in this one that we're reading, the point that God is making is that He's going to make a distinction between His people and Israel's people. You notice, I pointed out to you all of the pronouns and, and the new information that's, that's there. And while surely God loves the, the Egyptians as well as the Jews, it's actually His love that leads Him to make that distinction it's so people will know whose god they serve and the world that they're in and the lord treats them accordingly let me show you why let me show you how the passage breaks down first uh verses 21 through 24 is 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 the section where God speaks to Moses, tells Moses what to do, Moses confronts Pharaoh, and the plague happens. Verses 25 through verse 29 is is where Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron to to pray for them and to remove the plague. And, And Pharaoh even makes some additional concessions here that he hasn't made before. And then in verse 30 through 32, uh, that's Moses' praying, and then how Pharaoh ultimately responds to the plague, concluding this this nice, neat little, little section. Look at verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, and then speak to him or say to him, Thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord. Moses is to confront Pharaoh again. You remember last week he didn't. He wasn't commanded. There was no warning for the plague. Here there is, again, a warning. And he goes in the morning, and he goes out whenever he's to meet Pharaoh, specifically when Pharaoh goes out to the Nile to to worship, going out to the water. And the fact that it's in the morning means it was Pharaoh's ritual bath where he would offer make an offering to the gods, and specifically the god of the Nile. So, so Moses is to confront Pharaoh when, when, when Pharaoh is, is in the midst of idol worship. He's worshiping another god, and Moses, as God's representative, is to meet Pharaoh there and proclaim something to him. If you've not kept count, this is the sixth time Moses told Pharaoh to let God's people go and it's going to be the sixth time Pharaoh refuses. you got this all familiar scene. Moses confronts Pharaoh. He issues the demands through, through Moses. Let my people go in verse 20 that they may serve me. And then he tells him what's going to happen if he refuses to obey. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold... I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants on your people and into your houses, but look at verse twenty two This is different. This is the first time that we have anything like this occurring in the plagues, and we've talked about how the plagues are building they attack each one attacks an Egyptian god, but they also build an intensity and God is is will weave all of it together when he puts all the ten plagues together and, and And each is going to teach something. And this is different. So you're looking for new information. And you're also looking for repetition. And I've shown you the repetition. Here's the new information. And in that day, in the day in which I'm going to send the plague on you and your servants and your people, I will deal differently. I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. The result will be no flies there. It will be so that you will know, in order that you may know, that I am the Lord in the midst of the land, or the God over the whole earth. Thus I will make a distinction between my people and your people. There are three parts to that. I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, I'm doing that so that you will know that I am God over the whole earth and I will make a distinction between my people and your people. And verse 24 says, and the Lord did so. And then the flies came in just like the Lord said. Verse 22 is the theme of the entire section. It's the point. God makes a distinction in this plague of his people. And and we're going to get a glimpse in verse 22 as to why he does that. But not only now, but also going forward. And just as there are three parts to that, there's going to be three points. And the guys are going to put it up. Number one is found in the first part of verse 22. God's dealings are different With his people. God's dealings are different. With his people. Number two. God's distinction declares. He is God over all the earth. Also in verse 22b. In the second part. And number three. In that last statement. I will make a difference or division. Between my people and your people. God's division ultimately points toward eternity or something greater than, than just what's going on on the ground here, as they say. Let's look at the first one. God's dealings are different with his people. This, this plague that's, that's unleashed is, is flies, flies. Um, you, flies may seem more of a nuisance than than a plague, but but if you've ever been to Maine or Canada in the summertime or anywhere there are black flies, you know that it's more than just a just a nuisance. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. The first time I ever went uh, went bear hunting in in Canada, I learned exactly what that was like. I heard about the black flies, the black flies, and you know, yeah, it's probably going to be bad, but I had no idea how bad it was it was going to be. Um, there were so many flies. There was a constant hum. It was like a drone around you that you that you just didn't even know was there. It was it was like something running in the background. You know, we when we would go out, we covered every inch of our flesh. We wore mesh bug suits and gloves and nets over our heads and even ran thermocell repellers to 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 keep them away. And the second that you took your your glove off or any Exposed any skin, you had two or three bites in about ten or fifteen seconds. It means miserable. The Hebrew word that's translated here um, in the in the Septuagint is a specific kind of biting fly. It was a, it was a dog fly, and 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 they they multiplied rapidly, six to eight hundred eggs in at a time, and and they typically, just like a, maybe a fly you would think of here swarmed around dead things or rotten things like dung and that's where they would hang out and and lay their eggs and because of that whenever they would bite you they would transfer bacterial infections some of the early evidences of anthrax and transfers of anthrax came through the dog fly they bite humans and animals both and and they targeted the lower part of your body so it wasn't like you know, like if you're out in the summer here and there's gnats around, they kind of you know they like swarm around your head. They don't bite you, but they're up here. Well, these flies just went from your knees down. They targeted the lower parts of your extremities. So it's it's not you know really easy to to knock those things off um, or tell that they're even there if you're going about your daily your daily business when. Flies are in season. It's it's hard to go outdoors uh, without some protection on your legs. Now think of Egypt. They had no bug suits, no thermocells. It's a hot desert climate, and the normal clothing was designed to keep them to keep them cool, not to protect them from biting insects. Have you seen the pictures on Egyptian hieroglyphics? They they wore those white linen types of things that almost looked like what a what a lady would wear at the swimming pool for a cover-up. Um, it, it was knee-length. It was loose. Was tied at the waist. It left a lot of skin vulnerable. Um, in verse 21, look at verse 21. It says that their houses were filled with them and the ground was was covered. Their houses were full of swarms of flies in the ground on which they stand. And Moses describes this event as, a, as this uninundating cloud of bugs that attacks everything in their path. They're inside as well as outside. They're on man and they're on beast. Picture nowhere to escape. And when you walk, the flies are thick on the ground and wherever you walk with bare legs and. And sandals you stir up the flies that are resting on the ground, and they begin to they begin to swarm around your legs and and say there's a nice tasty meal and verse twenty two was altogether different in the land of, of Goshen now they don't have like instant cameras like if if you look for the weather this morning, you can probably log onto a website and go up on Liberty mountain or go. On whatever Bank of the James Tower, and they actually have a live picture of what the weather was like. Or if you're going to go skiing, you can go to, they'll show you the ski cam or, or whatever it, it might be. They didn't have that in, in this day. But, but can you imagine what it would have been like if, if the Egyptians actually had the internet and they were just covered with these flies? They're everywhere. And they pull up the Goshen cam. And they see the Egyptians, there's nothing there, and they're just walking around, going about their business, no problems whatsoever. Or they were able to trek to, to, the, to the line of demarcation between the people of Israel and, and Egypt, and the flies just stop right there. It's a Miraculous task it's it's a miracle that that the flies come remember a miracle is when god suspends his, the the norm of nature in order to to intervene for a specific purpose i mean flies are part of nature but he specifically intervenes and they don't gather like like this but, but it's also miraculous because insects flies can't tell the difference between an egyptian and a jew the fly can't tell where, you know, it doesn't have a, a Google Maps or GPS that says, "Okay, right here's where we stop, guys. We're only going to, you know, feed on this side of the border." God sends the plague on Egypt and he keeps the plague from from Israel. He deals differently with the Israelites as he does with the Egyptians. Aren't you glad that God deals <laughs> with you differently than what you deserve? It's all grace. The Israelites weren't any better than the Egyptians. It's just that their God was Yahweh. And if you're a Christian, if you trusted in Christ, God deals with you as, as one of His own. You're the the benefits of being a being a believer, of being a follower of Christ. All your troubles won't go away, but you have somebody to go through those troubles with. Life will still be hard. You may even face more difficulty because you have chosen to trust Christ than, than if you, you didn't. But but the reward and the glory that will be revealed in, in heaven pales to compare to the affliction or the suffering that we go through here. You're his precious possession. The apple of his eye. You, all of his promises to to you who are in Christ are, are yes and amen. And, and you have an unlimited supply. Never runs out. You're, you claim Romans 8, one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a blessed promise? He's promised to keep you. He's promised to care for you. He's promised to hear your prayers, to sanctify you, to redeem you, and and one day to take you to heaven where where He is so you can be with with Him. On the other hand, if you've never trusted Christ... you don't have him you have none of those promises oh God is gracious and more gracious than than you deserve or I deserved before before I came to the Lord and the sun will rise on the just as well as the unjust and, and all of the benefits that that are part of, of earth will be will be yours and and you may even have a, a good life from a standpoint of doesn't mean you're going to get cancer automatically or be a pauper or you know, your dog leave you, or whatever. Um, but none of those promises that that are specific to to those who have followed the Lord are yours. It's like um, one man described that all of the all of the benefits, all of the promises, all of the answers to to anything that you will face in life is is there, and, and yet it's on the other side of a wall. I mean, they're there, and they're on another side of a wall, and you can't get to them except through the door. There's one door that takes you from one side of the wall to the other side of the wall where all of the blessings and all of the promises and and all of those, those answers are in. As we heard in our passage this morning, that, that door is Jesus Christ. I uh, am the door. In fact, the very reason that God deals with you, if you're a Christian, or His people differently, is so that, that you will see, if, if you haven't trusted Christ, that that He is your God as well, your Creator. Look at the second point that Moses makes here in verse 22. And in that day I will treat the land of Goshen differently in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you, Pharaoh, may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. God's distinction declares He is God over all the earth. There's a, there's a key in that, in that statement. There's actually two. One is the name that God uses for Himself, and the other is, is that last phrase, in the midst of the land. Pharaoh and his magicians have already acknowledged that, that Israel's God has power, um, even over their gods. Pharaoh asked for prayer, and the magicians say, uh, surely this is the finger of God. We, we, we are limited. We, we are unable to do this. We're unable to counterfeit this. But they've never acknowledged that Yahweh was the God. They called Him Elohim, a strong one, a, a deity, in plague 2 and 3. And here... God says that I'm making this distinction, I'm treating the land of Goshen differently in order that you may know that I am the Lord. And I am the Lord in the midst of of all of the land. It's so that you'll know that I am God over all the earth. In idol worship, pagan deities is probably the best way to say it. Paganism wasn't developed until this point, but in idol worship, the worship of false gods, there was this thought that the god was connected to a location or a uh, an object. It, it was, that's why they have so many gods. they got the god of the water and the god of the sky and the you know god of your big toe and the god of the corn and the god of the fertility. I mean, gods were specific to a location. They thought their, their power was was their only domain was, was this. And, of course, then they fought one another. And that's why God is systematically declaring there's no God there, there is no power over the Nile, no power over the earth, no, no power over this, no power over that. I am the God. I am the one true and living God. I am God over all the earth. I am God in the midst of not just Goshen, but your land too, Pharaoh, and not just your land, but, but the entire planet. And so in Pharaoh's mind, his deity had, was, was connected to a location or an object. You remember when the Philistines, when they, they captured the ark of the Lord? I mean, why, why did they take it back with them? Because they thought, okay, wow, I mean, Israel's God's been known to be powerful, and we got his little deal here, then, then we got his power, right? That didn't work too well, did it? You can just ask Dagon, who was found face down with no head and no hands, laying before the ark of the Lord. And, and what did the Philistines do whenever they said, man, we've got to get this deal out of here. It's killing us. They made little golden tumors, it says, that represented the plague that, that happened to them, the, the power that they believed that Israel's God that was associated with this little box or this, this ark was, was bringing upon them, and they sent it back. That was their mindset. God was over a location or over, over an object. And a deity was thought to have no power except on their home turf. Well, that's not true of Israel's God. He's in the midst of all lands. It doesn't matter if ISIS or Al Qaeda or whatever ilk follows ultimately rules. from every throne in every corner of the globe, they will still be on Jesus' planet. God will still be reigning from heaven and He will still be ultimately in control. He is in the midst of all of the lands and has power to protect His people and power over Egypt as well as their gods. And he does this so Pharaoh and Egypt will know he is God. You know why God makes the distinction between his people and the world? You know why he made such clear lines between Israel and, and the world? Why there's the church and, and people who are not in the church and believers and unbelievers and heaven and hell and sinners and saints and... Why that distinction's all the way through the Bible? It's not because God doesn't love Egypt or sinners or whatever else it is. It's so that those outside of the kingdom can see that's exactly where they are and can see that who the true God is and that they're not following. God wants the world to know where they stand with Him. And so if, if if they realize they're in the wrong place, then, then they can correct that before it's, before it's too late. I can remember being so perplexed as an unsaved man, and I've shared this with you in my testimony, uh, with Theta Lewis. Here I have everything that's supposed to make me happy, and I have no joy. And here is this 50-some-year-old woman... Um, who has cancer and she's dying and she's filled with joy? That that makes no sense. There was a there was a clear distinction that I could draw between her life and my life, w- what she had and what what I had. And when all of my props were were removed, then I, I saw the need for her God, and God allows. The idols of our lives to crumble before us, so we'll see that He is the Lord over all of the earth. There's no place to turn but Him. Look at verse 23. It's because this division God makes in life is the same division that will be applied in eternity. Now you get a track with me here. Because God just makes a summary statement here. God's division points toward eternity. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Well, you've already said that, Lord, in multiple ways. If the Lord did so. It's a summary statement, but it's important. God's going to repeat this same statement again and again, as the plagues move along, as they get more and more serious, as they move toward a severer judgment, ultimately the death of the firstborn, which ultimately becomes the Passover. And as the judgment increases, so does the distinction between Egypt and and Israel until the final plague. And in the final plague, God will have Israel Mark their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb to identify themselves as God's people. And they'll do that by faith. Just like Pharaoh, God will tell Israel what to do. And He will tell them what will happen if they do not put the blood on the doorposts. The death angel will come and He will strike you. But if I see the blood, then I will pass over you. Because you're my people. And you have trusted me by faith. They would believe God's word, and they would mark their doorposts. And you see, this story right now, these plagues, the plague of flies... Plagues of judgment and this distinction is not just to tell us what happened 4,000 years ago between Moses and Israel. It was to point Israel toward the one who was coming. That Passover was to point toward the Lamb of God, which would take away the sin of the world. And this is to point us to, to something coming. God makes these differences and distinctions, this division, because he wants us to understand that the division that's made in life will be the same division that will be made in death. And when that happens, it's fixed. That Israel could not, in the middle of the night... Once they heard the first cry coming from Egypt before the death angel swept through Goshen and passed over the doors, when they heard the first death cry, they couldn't run out and and kill the lamb and get the blood and post it on the doorpost and go back in and say, okay, I'm safe. B.R. Lakin said, show me how a person lives and I'll show you how that person dies. God says the way that the person you follow what you do with your life is is going to follow you into eternity. And it's fixed. It's done. There's no other opportunity. We're not simply God's children because of our natural birth. In fact, the Bible tells us just the opposite. Our physical birth transmits the very depravity that our forefather Adam provided for us and then we followed in his likeness and we became children of wrath, not children of God. God is your creator. He's the God over all of the world. But but just because he's your creator doesn't mean he's your savior. You have to trust him as your savior. And the only way to to, to go from a child of wrath to... To a child of, of God, that Jesus Himself said to Nicodemus, it's it's not physical birth. It's you want to be part of God's kingdom, you must be born again, and it's by spiritual birth. The only way to be one of God's people in eternity is to become a, one of Christ's followers on the earth, and you do that just like the Egyptians. So just like the Israelites did, and the contrast is the way of Pharaoh. You do that by hearing God's Word and obeying what He says. Repent and believe. And Jesus will save you. All of those promises can be yes and amen and in. What a blessed truth.